0: Life can be disorienting, can't it? Forgive me for not using uh, perhaps the introduction that I have written this week. This will be maybe a little bit more unpolished, but this has been quite a week for me, perhaps for you. Uh, I, I come in kind of almost reeling after a week of both of our kids having the stomach bug, which we hoped was just a 24 hour bug. That then we hoped was a 48-hour bug. That then we hoped was a 72-hour bug. And then by day five, we're just like we're exhausted, right? I mean, maybe you've you've been there before. Uh, you know, we we found out um, I was on my on the phone with my mom on Friday and just some family news that just feels crippling. Uh, whenever there's a situation that you've kind of already celebrated and you thought was in the rearview mirror and now things are kind of unraveling, and you're just wondering what's going on. Like, we're still grieving the uh, the death of our grandpa, you know, two weeks ago, and, and then you hear this. Um, kind of, you know, on on top of that, there, there's just certain weight that comes from ministry, and, uh, you know, the, but it feels like, you know, kind of, I, I can only share with Jimmy and then, uh, you know, just because of everything that's going on, uh, we were planning to celebrate our 10-year anniversary this week, Abby and I, uh, by going to the same place that we spent our honeymoon, and yet, because our kids were sick, we were just like, we need to cancel that. We don't feel good about bringing her parents up and going away. And I say all of this not to make the sermon kind of a personal pity party that you didn't know you were invited to, uh, but honestly, just to say, I don't think my experience is that unique. Like, I think if you were standing where I am right now, you'd probably be able to give a similar list. And if it hasn't been this week, then it probably was like a couple weeks ago or maybe like next week, unfortunately. And if we're honest, I think we would just say, life can be disorienting. Life can be extremely disorienting. I was talking to uh, Elliot Fowler. He's a flight instructor who, who goes to the Oaks. And uh, I was telling him about this passage that I was preaching this week. And I was like, man, whenever you're flying, is there ever a moment in which you look out the windshield and it's dark or it's foggy or cloudy and you feel one way. And yet, you know that the facts that are on your gauges and instruments are telling you reality that feels far from what you're feeling in the moment. He said, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that feeling is so common in flying, whenever you lose sight of the horizon or the equilibrium in your ears is off and it's telling you something different from what you actually know to be true based upon your instruments, that it's called spatial disorientation. And it has caused many pilots to crash their aircraft. I was like, man, is that not how we often feel in the Christian life? Like, I know God is good, I can cite you passages of scripture and past experience about the faithfulness of God. And yet, whenever I come to this passage, I find my own soul echoing this prayer. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You say, you know what? I know that that God is good. I know that if I was to look at the dashboard of scripture or my past experience or the encouragement of my Christian friends that I would see all over the truth that God is good. But right now, whenever I look uh, outside of the windshield of my life, I am spiritually disoriented. And so the great thing is that God speaks to us, that Jesus meets us in the middle of the doubt, confusion, disorientation, even our own pride, to speak a better word, that we can offer up the tattered and disgusting, perhaps, prayer full of doubt. I believe, God. But you know what? Help my unbelief, because it's still there. And that Jesus would respond favorably, lovingly, graciously, actually giving us the gift of faith that we plead for to draw us closer to himself. And so the main point for this passage this morning is this, that we can live by faith because Christ is worthy of our complete and uncompromising trust. That we can live by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this. We're not going to dive into this passage, but mainly giving it to you for reference, so perhaps you can put it in your pocket and memorize it later. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And I love this passage because while it shows us that faith is required to draw near to God, it also reveals that faith is the only prerequisite to drawing near to God, that it's possible. That as the psalmist says, it is good for me to be near God. And this scripture in Hebrews says it's possible. So I'm sitting here saying, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, make your nearness to me seem better than if I was going to be sitting on a beach later this week reading a good book. Like, let your nearness to me be better than a healthy family. Like, like, God, give me the faith to actually follow Jesus in the way that I know him to be true. So here's where we're going. Uh, we, we began in uh, chapter 9 last week, and we got this picture of uh, Christ's glory. You may remember it as that moment of the transfiguration Uh, You've got Peter, James, and John, and they're up on this mountain with Jesus. And Jesus' glory, his deity, is completely revealed. And Peter, like most of us, is like, let's just stay here. Let's build tents. Like, I see you in your majesty. The Messiah has come. Let's stay here. And yet Jesus had other plans. He's like, no, Peter, we're going back down the mountain. We are going into the flat land of everyday life. We're going back into the sin, suffering, and ministry of this world. And with that being the case, we're going to look at verse, verses 14 through 29 and see three facts for walking by faith. Three facts for walking by faith. Pick up with me in verse 14. We read this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now let's just pause right there. The first fact that I want you to see here for walking by faith is this, that Jesus meets us in our sin and suffering that Jesus meets us in our sin and suffering. Now get this picture. Jesus is with the three disciples that were up on the mountain. He was with Peter, James, and John, and they come down from the mountain. We saw that last week. And now they're walking toward them, and they enter into the midst of chaos and confusion. It almost reminds me of the moment that Moses comes down from Mount Sinai carrying the Ten Commandments, and he walks to the people of Israel. And what does he see? Well, they've built this golden calf. Well, that scene of glorious revelation on the mountain almost seems to come to a screeching halt as they enter into the sin and chaos of the world. And we find something similar here. Well, so what's going on in this situation? Well, we know from the context that there is a demon-possessed boy. And it seems that the nine disciples that were not up on the mountain uh, with Jesus and saw the transfiguration, they were trying to cast the demon out, but for some reason they weren't able to do it. So the religious leaders, they saw this as an opportunity to discredit the authority of Jesus. And they're saying, hey, basically, if you guys can't do this, it's because the the guy you follow isn't who you say he is. And what we're going to see here is kind of three examples of how Jesus meets us in the middle of our sin and suffering by looking at the scribes, by looking at the disciples, and by looking at the boy who is possessed. So first, I want you to see that Jesus meets us in the sin Of our self righteousness and our self centeredness. You see, the scribes, they've been following the ministry of Jesus for some time now. We know that since uh, Mark chapter 3. But they've only been following the ministry of Jesus in an attempt to discredit him and to dismantle his authority. See, they discovered that if you can undermine the identity of Christ, then you can disobey his commands and ignore his word. And that tactic hasn't changed much by people today. They say, well, no, he's just a teacher, maybe a martyr. And they've come to the conclusion, if I don't admit that he is truly the son of God in the flesh, then I don't have to obey his words. And that's exactly what these scribes and religious leaders were trying to do. You see, some people would rather be right when it comes to their view of Christianity than to surrender all to Jesus and be rescued by his grace. And that's scary. You see, even religion is often a way to build walls around your heart to insulate yourself from true conviction. Sometimes people use tradition because it can kind of create a mirage of assurance for your soul, but it can't truly be trusted. We see that happening here. We can be so blinded by our own self-righteousness or our self-centeredness that by committing this sin, we can convince ourselves that we aren't actually committing it. How wild is that? You see, then the self centeredness of the scribes is put on full display as they begin to argue. Here's this boy suffering, and they just use it as an opportunity to argue about their own doctrine and what they believe. And for me, this kind of took me to a moment of self examination. You see, every time you argue with someone, you are wrestling with them over an idol that you treasure more than the Lord. And James 4.1 says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not the desires of your own heart? Is it not the passions within your own flesh? So what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Chances are it's something that you treasure more than God. You may need to repent of an idol that you have that has made your view of Christ unclear or caused you to unfairly treat someone else in the midst of our self-righteousness or our self centeredness. We see that Christ meets us, and yet whenever he approaches these scribes here, uh, they would see the Messiah and yet not truly acknowledge who he is. May we not respond the same way. May we respond in humble repentance and faith. Second, we see that Jesus meets us in the middle of our suffering. The Father and the Son display this for us. You see, Jesus does the exact opposite of what the religious leaders of the day were doing. They saw the suffering of the Father and the possession of the Son, and they just kind of used it as a diving board into their own agenda to make the point they had to make. You see, self-righteous people often use other people as props for their own gain. But Jesus came to serve people who were suffering. Self-righteous people often just want other people to see them serving. But whenever we serve to be seen, let's be honest, we are truly serving ourselves. When we serve for others, to see Christ through us, though, we are serving both them and ultimately serving Christ. And so here we see the way that Christ enters into the suffering of this boy. And ultimately, he enters into our suffering. Jesus comes down from the mountain into the chaos. And here we see a beautiful microcosm of the incarnation. This is a picture of the gospel to us, that Christ has entered into the midst of fallen humanity to bring restoration. And here he does that again. As Jesus, he asked what the argument was about. We we see that in verse 16. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And I'm sure if the scribes were the first to answer, they would have jumped up and said, we're arguing about doctrine. And if the disciples would have been the first to answer, I think they would have said, we're arguing about the extent of our power to cast out demons. But you know who answers first? A desperate father. He runs up to him, verse 17, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. As soon as he thought that perhaps the disciples would bring some relief, he says, I brought my son them, and even they couldn't do it. You see, the intent of the demon here is clear. Verse 22 goes even a little bit further than what the Father describes here, and it says that this demon has sought several times to destroy the Son by throwing him into the fire, by casting him into, into the water to drown him. And, and isn't it interesting That whenever Jesus is speaking in John 10.10, he says that Satan's desire is always to come to steal, kill, and destroy. You see, for this young boy, the life that God had intended for him had been ripped away from him. He He had been on the verge of death more times than his father could count. And his life would be destroyed by the enemy unless one greater than Satan would intervene. And by God's grace, he does. As I, as I was looking at this, I realized that the suffering of this boy parallels our human condition well. Now, I don't want to minimize human responsibility or personal guilt whenever it comes to sin. We commit sin. We are guilty for sin. But I think this passage also makes it clear that we are victims of sin's power. And we desperately, desperately need to be liberated by the grace of Christ. You see, we were created to thrive in a relationship with God, and yet sin has separated us from that relationship. And like a plant that requires water to survive, whenever we are separated from our source of life, our souls shrivel and die. Here we almost see Satan preaching an anti-gospel. If the good news of the gospel is that in Christ all can be restored and have life, the anti-gospel that Satan preaches is that apart from Christ, all can be destroyed and all will receive death. And you see the bait that Satan often uses to lure us to our own self-destruction is often our own self-absorption, our self-hatred, or perhaps even our self-harm. In verse 25, we learn that the spirit was not only mute, but deaf. And I want to tell you why that's such an important factor here. The boy couldn't hear anything. And I love the way that Mark writes. Like as we've gone through the, the book of Mark, I have realized there is so much more to the depth of God's word than I would have ever than I could ever fathom for the rest of my life. But it's it's interesting, right, that we discover this boy who is deaf and he cannot hear right after the last command that the Father gave on the mountain was, This is my son listen to him. We talked about the gift of being able to listen to God, to hear the voice of God. And then what do we see here? As a direct result of Satan's power, this boy is deaf, he can't hear anything. And apart from Christ, our own soul becomes an echo chamber for the lies of the enemy and our destructive desires of the flesh. I mean, think about for a moment, the tragedy of being both deaf and possessed by a demon. Do you know what that meant for this boy? He could never hear the loving or affirming words of his father. He may go to the synagogue, but not once was he ever able to comprehend a truth or promise from God's word. And yet he was possessed by a demon. There was this this internal struggle of the soul constantly being fed lies. Can you imagine that kind of desperation and depression that he was in? His soul felt like a storm-tossed sea, reeling on the waves of despair. And I wonder if you can relate. If you can't, surely someone that you love dearly can relate. You see, tragically, we live in a time period where self-hatred often leads to self-harm. And so I want to, I want to pastor those who question their worth or their worthiness to live And there have been moments over the past year that I've regretted that I haven't talked about this enough from our pulpit. You see, the same enemy who sought to drown this boy and to throw him in the fire wants you to curse the way that you look. He wants you to hate yourself so much that you would cut yourself or seek to take your own life. He wants to destroy you by causing you to give your body to anyone that you find attractive. He wants to destroy you by pumping you full of narcotics, and by causing you to drink way more than you would ever think responsible. He wants to rewire your brain with images on a screen that bring you to the point of self-destructive obsession with a 2D image. He wants you to think that your gender is different from the one that God assigned you so that you would mutilate your flesh and call it freedom. You see, Satan's great deception is that he often offers us shards of broken glass and convinces us that there are diamonds in his hands. And too many of us have the scars on our own hands to prove it. But the reality of the gospel is that Christ's hands that were scarred for you. and His hands were scarred that yours would be made whole. Do you want to know why your life is worth living? Do you want to know why you shouldn't take your life because Christ gave his life for you? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you were bought with the price of Christ's blood. And value is derived by what someone is willing to pay. I remember whenever we we were looking for a house, I asked our realtor, I said, what's this house worth? And he said, it's worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. Now, if that same principle is true when it comes to your life, then what does it mean that the very son of God was crucified, that the price that was paid to declare your value and worth is the blood of God's own son? Can I convince you that your life is worth living because Christ laid down his for you? So next time you look in the mirror with disgust or you make plans for a weekend that you plan to regret but not remember, the next time you seek to compromise your purity for someone who says they care about you but doesn't actually, remember that you were bought with a price. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so Jesus, he meets us right there in the midst of that sin, in the midst of that suffering. And third, the disciples show us that Jesus meets us in the sin of unbelief and pride. Sorry, guys, this text is just so like, visceral for me. I truly feel like I've lived it out this week. And man, this is convicting here. In verse 19, Jesus exposes the root issue as to why the disciples were unable to exercise the demon. It was their unbelief. Jesus addresses the whole crowd uh, upon coming down the mountain. He says, Oh, faithless generation. And while I think he's speaking to everyone, I think he is specifically talking to the nine disciples that are standing there who were not up on the mountain with him. Their issue is ultimately a lack of faith. They've committed the sin of unbelief and the sin of unbelief simply looked from a different angle is the sin of pride. I say that because in verse 28, the disciples are gonna say, hey Jesus, why could we not cast out the demon? You know who the emphasis is on there? We, us, hey, We have this power. Why could we not do this? And it's almost as if Jesus is going to grab them by the collar and say, guess what, guys? It's not about you. You don't have any authority. You only have the power that has been given to you from me. Guess what? You couldn't cast it out because all authority you have is derived and I almost wonder if in this moment they've become too prideful, puffed up on themselves. Because in Luke 10, right before this, we see that Jesus sends out the 72 to go into different places, to spread his message, to perform miracles, and to cast out demons. Could it be that they became a little too self-reliant in this act? You see, the dependent belief that should characterize the Christian life, it almost feels as it has been replaced with a formula, A trusted process that perhaps they figured out uh, a specific way to handle these things. Maybe they've you know put this kind of in a method. This is how you do this to get these results. It's almost as if their prayer is the opposite of John the Baptist's. John the Baptist prayed, "Lord, may you increase and I decrease." And it is almost as if they're saying, "Hey, why couldn't we do this? Like, may we increase and you decrease? You don't keep needing to hold our hands. Are we still that reliant upon you?" And don't tell me these guys didn't struggle with pride, because in this very next pericope that we'll see next week, they are arguing about who is the greatest. All right, they are standing in the presence of the one who spun planets into orbit, and they have the nerve to argue about their own clout in the presence of God. And yet, we can be so overcome by the same unbelief and pride. I think the warning here is for those of us who have walked with Christ for a long time. Don't make God's consistent faithfulness to you an excuse for sinful presumption. Don't make God's consistent faithfulness to you an excuse for sinful presumption. Let me tell you how that works itself out. Husband, praise God for a good marriage and a great spouse. But you need to love your bride like Christ loved the church. You need to pursue her, and you need to sacrifice yourself for her. Wives, love your husbands. Praise God for a good marriage, but be faithful. Don't presume upon God's grace. As a church, wow, every week there are people here that I've never met before And I think it's safe to say that the momentum and and the the growth that we've seen uh, as the Oaks since last fall has been something that that I've never seen before as uh, the, the pastor who started this church five years ago. But if that would ever cause us to pat ourselves on the back or to forget the God who builds his church, then may he close our doors. May we be humble and dependent upon him. If you're here and you just kind of have willingly made a habit out of a certain sin, or you're you know just disobedient in things that God has made really clear, this is a warning for you. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. Of the nine disciples that were standing there and receiving this rebuke, one would be Matthew. And I think ultimately, he would take this rebuke to heart, he would cling to Christ, and he would write a gospel that would shake our world. And another person standing there would be Judas. And he would not take this rebuke to heart. He would continue in unbelief. He would betray Christ, and ultimately it would cost him his soul. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what? I'm not a Christian, and I don't really believe all of this stuff, but I think one day whenever I'm laying on my deathbed, I'll get it all figured out. Know that you may not be offered that chance. And if you're sitting here and you're claiming to be a Christian, and and you're thinking, you know, I'm just going through the motions. The status quo is fine you know, this kind of occasional relationship that I have with Christ is good enough, I hope you don't find that convincing because I don't think Jesus finds it convincing here. And I want you to hear this with the greatest pastoral love and care that I can offer you because I'm right here with you. You see the self-righteousness and idolatry of the scribes, the suffering, the self-destruction of the boy, the unbelief and the pride of, of the scribes or the disciples, it all points us to the same symptoms of the heart and their hearts were sick with sin. And so what happens in this passage the, son, the Father brings the Son to Christ. And in the same way, if you feel the same conviction at this moment that I, that I did as I'm writing this and lived this this whole week, then may we bring our hearts to Christ. Because what we will find is that Jesus is a worthy object of our faith. The second fact is that Jesus is a worthy object of our faith. Look at verses 21 through 28 with me. And Jesus asked his Father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Here in this second section, we will see that Jesus is a worthy object of our faith. See, after rebuking the disciples, Jesus addressed the father again, and he asks, How long has this been happening to to the boy? And at first I didn't understand why Jesus asked this question. It's almost embarrassing to see the omniscient Messiah ask such a simple question. And so whenever I read this, I wanted to lean in a little bit, and as I thought more about it, I thought to myself, He didn't ask this question for Himself. He asked this question for us. He asked this question for everyone standing around. He asked this so it could be written in the book of Mark. Jesus knew. But how would we have known the magnitude of this situation? How could we see the depth of Christ's power if we did not understand that this had been nearly a lifelong disease? And yet Christ asks so that we would know just the extent of his power and the problem that stands before him. So the father begins to explain just how bad the possession had been over the years Imagine for a moment, as he describes this, how many times the father had pulled his own son out of fire. Imagine doing that once. Now imagine doing it so many times that you just say, I don't know, it's been a lot. Imagine how many times this father jumped into a lake, risking his own life to save his sons. Now imagine this moment, whenever he hears that the disciples can do something about it, he brings his child to the disciples. And they try, they say, sorry, we did the best we can. And his hopes are dashed again. They spoke, but the demon remained. And so worn down, he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, please help us. Please have compassion on us. And whenever I read that this week, and I was just thinking about our theme as a church, being better together, that word us really stuck out to me because, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think it shows us something of what it means to suffer alongside other people Well, did this father have a demon? No. Was this, was this father possessed? No. And yet he begs that Christ would have compassion on us because he learned what it meant to suffer with someone else. May we be a church that suffers together. You don't have to be a biblical counselor to suffer alongside someone well. You simply do two things. You say, I'm going to listen to you, and then we're going to bring this to Jesus. Some of the sweetest moments in the Christian life is whenever you say, I don't really have words, but we can read Psalm 23, and I can pray it over you. It also means that we need to be humble enough, that we need to crucify our own pride enough to tell our brothers and sisters when we're struggling, that we may experience the compassion of Christ together. And so while we commend the Father for the way that he shares in the suffering of the Son, we also recognize here that his view of Christ is incomplete. You see, he calls him teacher in verse 17, uh, which is a sign of respect, but it doesn't fully declare who Christ is. He asks for Christ's compassion, and yet if he would have known who he was talking to, he would realize that Christ is both the fountain and source of compassion. He says, if you can do anything, but if he would have known who Jesus truly was, he would have prayed this prayer with bold confidence as he approaches Christ. And so the response that Jesus gives him proves to us the very point we're trying to make, that Jesus is a worthy object of our faith. You see, Jesus repeats the man's words. He says, if you can and then he pauses and he says, all things are possible for one who believes. In a single sentence, Jesus flexes both his limitless power and sovereignty over all things. In Christ, all things are possible. But I imagine that if, if you're sitting here, you're probably not concerned about all things. It's not all things that make you anxious, but perhaps there's one thing. There's one thing that feels completely impossible. There's one thing that makes falling asleep at night a little more difficult for you in your current situation. And so I want you to realize as you read verse 23 again, this isn't a trite quote on a coffee cup in your home. No, this is an unflinching promise from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. All things are possible for those who believe. But perhaps you wanna push back a little bit. I felt that as I read this text, I kind of threw some of my own questions back at this verse. I mean, I ask, how is this not just a blank check to get whatever we want in God's name? What about all the times that I've believed as much as I absolutely know how, and it doesn't seem that my prayers were answered the way that I want? Maybe you resonate with these questions like I do. Remember, the point that we are making here is Jesus is a worthy object of our faith. And so while all things are possible, affirming the limitless ability of Christ, not all things that we pray for are good from God's perspective. So we submit our wants and our will to the Father. This promise is not a blank check to just ask for God to sign off on our plans. We can humbly pray like Jesus did in the garden. Let this cup pass from me, but ultimately let your will, not my will be done. We can pray to God. The things that we want, that we feel like are in alignment with scripture, and then ultimately let things fall into place as he pleases. I think this also helps us understand how we can pray for something with what we feel as great faith and then something different come to pass. Because we pray from a limited perspective. We might pray fervently for a loved one to be healed from a sickness or a disease. We might pray for God to give us a new job because that's what we think we need. But ultimately, God knows what we need. In Tim Keller's book on prayer, he gives us this helpful quote. God will either give us what we ask Or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. This means that we can pray fervently and then we can just rest in whatever God's plan turns out to be. Scripture aligns our desires. We pray God's will and we let him take care of the rest. I think whenever it comes to prayer, one of the common misconceptions that this passage dismantles is that our faith must be completely without doubt or defect. But look at the way that this man responds to Jesus. He says, I Believe, but help my unbelief. That's there. The prayer of this man reminds me of whenever I was a little kid. Now we go to the water park in our town, and you know, around lunchtime, I would just pull out this like wet, soggy, crumpled, maybe even a couple tears in it, five dollar bill for lunch, and give it. And as unsightly as it was, somehow it was accepted. And that's how this prayer is. It's like, man, this thing's kind of I don't know. And it's like Jesus is like that'll work. (laughs) So we're like, okay, great. I mean, the key to this prayer is not perfect faith. It's a perfect object of our faith. It is Christ. It's not the amount. It is the object who is the Lord. And he is the one in which we are placing our trust. It's on this occasion in which in the book of Matthew, Jesus explains the whole story about having a mustard seed of faith being enough. You see, the father believed that Jesus had the ability to save his son, but he also asked for grace in the midst of his shortcomings that felt obvious in the moment. He humbly acknowledged that his faith was as weak as his own exhausted body. And he fell at the feet of Jesus, confessing that he believed. But his only hope was in Christ's compassion. And guess what? This is how we all come to Jesus. Whether it's for the first time or the 10 millionth time, we come to Jesus bringing only our neediness. I believe, help my unbelief. And that's true belief. We don't come before Jesus making our prayer requests and then supplying a list of our financial giving records or our church attendance or how many Bible reading plans we've completed. No, we come to Christ declaring all things are possible and I do not deserve a single one of them. And so I believe, help my unbelief. You see, we ask Jesus to help those areas of unbelief because faith is by definition a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 describes faith as a gift It's like whenever Brooks and Charlie give Abby a a birthday present, you know, uh, on her birthday. Those guys are two and four. They don't have jobs. (laughs) Their only ability to give Abby a gift is by first receiving it from me. And guess what? Even though she knows it, whenever they bring it to her in that bag, she smiles. She's full of joy. She wraps her arms around them and they feel special. They feel loved by it. In the same way, Christ And whenever we come to him in great faith, whenever we come to the Father, knowing that he has given us the gift of faith, he is still glad to receive us with open arms, knowing that he supplies the very thing that he requires. And so it pleases Christ whenever the Holy Spirit infuses belief in us, and when we humbly pray for it, when we are not confident in our faith. You see, from start to finish, the Christian life is one of faith and trust. And I know faith can be a hard concept to explain. I mean, sometimes... Whenever I'm trying to explain this, I'll use an airplane as an analogy because it's one thing to recite knowledge about, you know, the aerodynamics of an airplane or how it works, but it's a completely different thing whenever that knowledge becomes trust and you step foot on an airplane and you buckle your seatbelt. That does not mean that all of your questions are answered and you completely understand everything that is taking place. What it does mean is that you are no longer having your feet on the ground, but you are seated firmly in the airplane with full trust and faith in that process. We'll see here in the same way. We come to Christ saying, hey, I believe. Uh, I've left everything else that I once clung to. This is my, there are no fallback plans. This is it, Jesus. It is your death, your resurrection, my whole life in your hands. And in that way, we pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And this is the entire Christian life. You never outgrow this prayer. As long as you're trusting in your own morality or your good deeds or religious tradition, then you're trusting in something other than Christ. But the moment that you pray this prayer, your faith is in Christ. It's in his death and his resurrection. You're given a new heart that that it now it places faith in Christ again and again and again. So yes, it takes faith that moment that you first believe, but it also takes faith to trust that God is sovereign whenever wars are raging in our country. It takes faith to believe that God has really forgiven all of your sin in Christ and you are no longer under condemnation. So you can approach the throne of God boldly. It takes Faith, to, to use that moment, to perhaps risk your reputation to share the gospel with a coworker or a family member. The whole Christian life is one of faith, praying this prayer again and again. And in response to this man's faith, Jesus commands the unclean spirit to leave. In verse 25, we see that a crowd was coming toward Jesus. And so Jesus, not wanting to create a spectacle here, rebukes the demon. The demon leaves, kind of gives this one last ditch effort to try to harm the boy. And in that moment, falls to the ground. And then Jesus, displaying his resurrection power, lifts this boy up. He rises up and stands in great strength. So that leads us to our third and final application here. Dependent faith is expressed through prayer. Dependent faith is expressed through prayer. You see, as the dust settles on this encounter, Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach his disciples. They they just witnessed the resurrection power of Christ through this boy, through this miracle. And yet they recognize, hey, we were unable to cast out this demon in the same way that you just did. And so he explains that this is only possible through prayer. Now, it may seem here that the focus is shifting from faith to prayer, but I want you to see that these two things are intimately connected. And in the same way that you can't see wind, but you can hear the wind chimes as they cling together on your porch, you can't see faith. And yet it is made tangible. It is audibly, audibly expressed through prayer. It is revealed through prayer. Our faith is seen in the amount that we, uh, that we approach God and ask for his blessing, that we seek his face, that we pray. And so here, dependent faith is expressed through prayer. And a tangible measure of our faith is the amount that we pray. And we see the disciples, whenever things don't work out, what do they do? They begin to argue, not pray. And maybe they they were telling the scribes, hey, we've done this a million times before. Let me tell you about a demon we casted out one time. They're not praying. They weren't falling on their knees, begging a merciful God to act upon their behalf. No, they took things into their own hands. And Jesus here is warning us about this sinful tendency to self-reliance. And so he invites us to pray. See, because prayer is simply talking to God, I think the three interactions that we see here give us a good picture of the way that God can change our hearts as we approach him. And so I want to ask, who do you most resemble in this story? Do you most resemble the boy who's oppressed by evil, ultimately dead, who Christ will bring to life? Do you most resemble the father here who's crippled by unbelief, and yet God brings him into confidence as he approaches Christ? Or do you most resemble the disciples who kind of know what's going on, they become self-reliant, they presume the grace of God, and have grown cold in their dependence and prayer, their need for his presence? You see, the boy in the story, he appeared dead. And guess what? Our human soul, apart from Christ, is declared dead. And yet the moment that Christ reaches out his hand and clings to him, the boy who was once thought to be dead rises to life. If you in this moment would say, I am spiritually dead, and yet for the first time the gospel is making sense to me, that Christ lived a perfect life in my place, that he died for the debt of my sin, and that he is resurrected to life, and I need that, then in this moment you can say, Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief, and you will be restored to life. If you're sitting there and and you're thinking, I'm a lot like the Father, I I want us to understand that every time we commit a sin is a moment of unbelief. In in essence, whenever we sin, we are saying, God, I think I know better than what you have told me when we choose to ignore a command that's unbelief. But graciously, the Holy Spirit has not given up on us. He promises to answer this prayer that we can come to Christ and say, I believe, help my unbelief, and He will give to us great confidence in what Christ has done. That he will continue to conform us to the image of Christ until we stand before him and we are made sinless as he is. And third and finally, the disciples. They move from presumption and self-reliance to prayer. I think this passage reminds us that we often presume upon God's kindness. But something changes whenever we pray. Our entitlement is replaced with gratitude and praise toward God. The fact that we often downplay our sin is replaced with genuine confession and heartfelt repentance. We find ourselves actually bringing the requests of others before God's throne as an act of brotherly love and affection toward them. Our hearts begin to grow warm in the presence of God as we find ourselves spending time with Him just for the fun of it. Our calloused self-reliance by God's grace is peeled away and we enjoy the gift of being near to God. You see, the, often, the opportunity to pray is often taken for granted. For centuries, as Anna Claire read, God was only within earshot for the priests who entered the Holy of Holies. And speaking to God always had to be accompanied by a bloody altar and burning incense, but not for us. We can pray because that veil has been torn. We can pray because Christ is a perfect sacrifice that established our ability to communicate with God. We can pray because we are now indwelled with the very presence of God that once dwelled within that temple through the Holy Spirit and Christ daily lives to intercede on your behalf. So may we pray. Prayer brings clarity in the midst of our spiritual disorientation. It fixes our eyes on the truths that are in front of us and we can look to God's word. We can listen to the Christian community that we have around us. We can look again at the testimony of faithful believers that have gone before us. We can look at the rearview mirror of God's past experiences of faithfulness. And we can pray, God, I believe, help my unbelief. And he will every time. Let's pray.